Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Oh, welcome back to the Book Riot Podcast. <laughs> you sound so excited. I, You know... Sometimes you, you, you muster a little extra and you find it and it's there, you know, sometimes you look and the drawer's empty, but sometimes you find it. I'm inspired. We talk about stuff related to the world of books reading, things that are cool, new and worth talking about. Sometimes they're worth talking about if they're not cool or new. We've got a couple of those <laughs> um, this week, uh, kind of a, a more interesting news week than, than I might have expected. I also got some listener feedback that I'm going to spring on Rebecca here Ooh. in a minute, I see, I, I, I didn't know, because I saw it came out, the first episode of Michelle Obama podcast, and the first guest. I mean, I guess so much for, you know, not showing the shark and Jaws until the end of the movie, <laughs> right? You know, so much for that idea. We wondered, mm-hmm. right, if maybe if you hold the, 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 the big B in abeyance there uh, for a little while, but a le- I mean, also, why? <laughs> I guess there's the other right. questions. So I do want to hear your thoughts about that. But first, let's, uh, let's do a sponsor break so we can uh, fund this uh, shenanigan. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay. Uh, do you want to do, you want to tell me about that first? Or you want some interesting sure. listener feedback? What do you want to do? Uh, why don't? Well, is the listener feedback good? It's interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, it's some thoughts about uh, HP JKR kind of stuff that I hadn't really considered. So yeah, yeah, let's hear listener feedback because I might have a lot of Michelle Obama thoughts. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. It's so you're, what you're saying is it's, this is not follow up. This is just stuff. Yeah, the follow sure. the Michelle podcast. Not just, it's just it's yes. regular. Uh, it's just item. content. So we'd asked a while back, a while back, could have been two weeks ago, could have been, you know, 17 weeks ago, who knows, um, about what people were doing about the Harry Potter situation, um, especially as it relates to J.K. Rowling's transphobia and how to think about it and, you know, what you're going to do, how to hold in your head and heart an affinity for the stories of the Harry Potter stories, which, frankly, I have still, Mm -hmm. I should say, um, and yet... Uh, very much not wanting to be in the same general intellectual continent at what she's throwing down over there right now. Um, and so one of our listeners wrote in and said, you know, what she's finding, um, I think it sounds like she's a little bit younger than me, maybe quarter of in your age, maybe a little bit younger with, with kids. She's a little bit younger of a mom with younger kids. And she's saying, you know, here's the thing. I think she's, she thinks the kids who are in their you know, tweens, teens, maybe a little older – I guess the Zoomers, I'm not sure we call them now. They're certainly not millennials. Let's not make that mistake of like throwing anyone who you think just a young person in the millennials basket. Yeah. Like, you know what? She said, you know what's interesting is the politics and representations in Harry Potter itself. Forget about what J.K. Rowling has said. Or not, not forget mm. about it. Put it to the side for a second, right? If you just look at what's in the stories themselves, even that feels behind the times now. You know, the gender stuff is pretty mm-hmm. dated even now. There's in, in listening to the books with my kids, there's a few moments like, you know, the diversity is very like, I don't know, barely there. Any non-white people, the stuff about, well, Dumbledore's gay, but it's not in the text. And, you know, there's no it, it, it feels already non-progressive uh, to the time so that kids or students or, you know, high school kids or kids that are interested in our current political moment in politics writ large already have kind of a, a Grandma Joe situation, I think, going on um, mm. with those stories. So they're not they're not so central to their like angst about, you know, J.K.R., what she's saying, because they kind of have moved on. It's not their story. Um, there's a generation that I think is 
probably, it's certainly younger than me, probably a little bit younger to you, that this was their story when they were 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, mm-hmm. right? They followed them all the way through. Those people are parent, you know, maybe young parents now, young adults certainly, maybe getting into uh, <clears throat> creeping middle-agedom. <laughs> and, you know, it's that that they're projecting the importance of the stories that it was for them onto mm. the generation after that. So I thought that was a really interesting thing, that there may not be a problem, quote-unquote, yeah, for them, because they you know, think of rolling like Tolkien, right, or something like that. Yeah, it's it's kind of already there. That's super interesting, and it makes so much sense, and I mm. had not thought... I hadn't either. ...about that at all. But yeah, thinking about the books kind of as a historical mm-hmm. document, and maybe, I think Tolkien is a great analog, because like, like, Tolkien was a big deal for my dad, who read it in yeah. the 70s, and I inherited his paperback copy. And even that was and, 20 years after publication, interestingly, back in right. the 70s, so yeah. Yeah. Um, and by the time I got to it, you know, like those were definitely not the books that anybody in my generation was mm-hmm. thinking of as like defining their generation. I think many of us had formative reading experiences with Lord of the Rings and with The Hobbit, but it wasn't like the thing that came out when we were kids and that defined us. And it makes so much sense that, yeah, like folks in our rough age range, like I was already in college when Harry Potter came out, so mm-hmm. I didn't have that, like formative experience with it but folks roughly there who have young kids now it makes sense that they see that it was important to them mm-hmm. and we're all projecting that generation's value of it onto yeah. their children right. but of course it's a historical like hopefully any piece of fiction mm-hmm. that's 20 years old has become a historical document in some ways that's behind the times of where we want progressive politics and discussions and understandings of what inclusivity and diversity and identities are right, um, right. I, I like that that's i think that's really interesting yeah, I, I'm not sure if I'm not sure if I like it necessarily so much as it makes a degree of sense, right? That we're now 20 years past the first book coming out. It's entered in, you know. And there's this thing we do, I think, fairly um, or, or not, but I feel like is fairly when we do with historical texts of any kind. You know, the, the Gatsby's of the world, the Dickinsons, were like just because the politics of the text don't represent our best thinking of the day to day doesn't mean we necessarily throw them out now they're actively you know ra- i mean there there's a limit to that but you also kind of do the historical document piece you hold an abeyance like well these don't represent the best thinking of our days much like in 100 years the best thinking mm-hmm. of our days will probably seem yeah, retrograde exactly. and bonkers anyway but you still can have a relationship with the text that isn't oh my god i can't believe this thing is doing this because it's not it's not cur- it doesn't have that 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 the well, I guess currency in, in inherently in the word means currentness, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't have a currency to it where it feels like it's affecting the world that we live in in quite right. the same way. That, if it doesn't like, do that, then the stakes are lower, interesting. Yeah, exactly. That like kids are still reading Harry Potter mm-hmm. now, but it may not be the thing that shapes their worldview in the way mm-hmm. that it was for that, that first generation of readers that came up with it. Um, yeah. So yeah. That's, a, that's a smart take. Thank you, yeah. listener. I guess on the other, I'm not sure what hand we're on, but on the other hand, there hasn't been like the next one. Like, you know, publishing is always looking for the next Harry Potter. But if you even think of it from sort of a epistemological, like current fantasy series property, intellectual property kind of a situation, that represents the stake, you know, the the important, the cultural importance of a Harry Potter or a Star Wars or a Marvel. Like those mm-hmm. things all exist, but they're... You know, a lot of those fans are twenty five plus, or Star Wars are like me and older. Frankly, they're not, they're not cool. They're not cool as the wrong. It's because it's not even cool. They don't feel, they don't feel relevant. They don't feel exciting. They don't feel like smells like Teen Spirit, like uh, by Nirvana, felt to me when I was thirteen years old. I guess what I'm trying to say. Yeah, or you know, it's happening on TikTok or places that are outside the world of books and readings that currently exist. Maybe I think both are possible, and mm-hmm. I think also it, it's important that. Harry Potter did come out when the internet was very nascent and then some of the community and passion around it was developed as those kids like got online and really, you know, Mm -hmm. found each other online and grew that fandom. And that was possible in the early days of the internet in a way that it feels to me like we really don't have monoculture that way anymore. Like we've talked about this on the show before, like it's much harder and much less likely for like one book series or one movie series or one franchise to become like the thing that defines a whole generation Mm -hmm. Uh, than it it used to be because we have such, we've just so many more opportunities and so many more options in media. Like a lot of book nerds, for me, too, books and stories 
were a way of expanding my worldview um, mm-hmm. as I was a, as a young person, you know, in that 10, 11, 12 and up sort of situation. Another, I, I think another real possibility here is rather than books and reading and fiction and stories serving as a proxy for engagement with the wider world, teens and tweens and, you know, proto-college high school kids, they just engage directly in the world. I mean, they, right. they, they're they engaged. They're out and protesting and <laughs> yeah. doing stuff like right. that. Which is not something, frankly, I would have done at 14 or 15 or 16. Hard to imagine how that would have happened. So I don't know how I would have found out about a protest to go to at 14. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The only protests I saw when I was growing up were the, were the honk for hemp dudes um, out on the corner of 23rd and Mass in downtown Lawrence. But like, Those guys are probably still there. Yeah. The thing that books and reading maybe did for us or people like us or, you know, whether it's demographic or epochal or whatever is – because of the internet, because of the way that things are happening differently, an awakened, you know, political mobilization seems to have moved down uh, mm-hmm. the age range. Now, you know, things about voting, we'll see if that really pans out. But uh, I think that's an also interesting, too, that sort of using a story, a fantasy story, as a point of entry to thinking about larger issues about, you know, prejudice or whatever, you know, power, authoritarianism, whatever it might be. It's like, well, why don't we just think about it? Direct- why don't we just think about it directly? Why <laughs> right, don't we just sort right. of make it a, the, the the subtext, the text, which then kind of evaporates a little bit of the the feeling of gravitas that you might get from really engaging in a fantasy story. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, the stakes yeah, in the sense. real world are seem so crazy, and I I can go engage with them differently than you know may, maybe worrying about the Death Eaters or worrying about um, Sauron or you know worrying about. Uh, um, the White Witch of Narnia. It's like, well, we got our own real White Witches out here. Um, trying <laughs> right, to like stuff. you want a dystopian thought experiment? Hello yeah, and welcome. Right. Yeah. So I, I wonder if that. I wonder if that's some of it too. Like if those kids who, again, ten or twelve seems young to me. I don't know. I'd be curious to hear from other people. Though my kids will be that age before too long. Um, but uh, is is that something that's actually happening, or how, what stories are they looking to for that sense of? Yeah, this is it. This is the this is the this is the wavelength that we're on right now. What are they tuning into? Um, to borrow the parlance of a much <laughs> older generation as well. So I thought that was really thoughtful, interesting feedback. Kind of the story behind the story, because um, this this listener wrote in and said she's feeling quite a bit of anxiety about you know Harry Potter is very important to her. She like a lot of people were daydreaming about the days where her kids were old enough where they could read it together or mm-hmm. read anything together. That's interesting right. for the adults and kids. Like I know that feeling very well. Of, like you know, there's only so many times you can do one two one fish blue fish or a little blue truck or whatever have you. And like think about wouldn't it be great. I have very fond memories of my dad reading Narnia to us and, you know, Tolkien, but you just can't think of Harry Potter in the same way. Now, maybe you think of it in a different way and you contextualize and blah, blah, blah. Um, but also maybe the, the, the thrill is gone um, a little bit that, that central, that, that some of the thrill is gone, especially for younger kids who have a different political sensibility than you did. And this is growing up and this is getting older and so on and so forth. But, uh, it was a really interesting perspective. Okay. Um, let's do another sponsor. So, uh, Rebecca's winding up. I can feel our pitching arm uh, getting ready here. All right. Tell, tell me about how – okay, wait, 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 wait. How do I want to do this? Do I just want – do you just want to wind up and let me go? Do you want me to, like, interview about it? How do you want to do this? Well, you know, I'll just start and then you can yeah. ask me some things. Right. We'll just talk about it, Jeff. How about that? Um, so Barack is the first guest, which – makes so much sense uh, through the lens of like trying to get people to hit that subscribe mm-hmm. button and keep coming back for the rest of the season. Uh, so I thought that was really smart. And the the frame of the podcast, as I think we talked about when they announced it, is about like important relationships and connections and the power of opening up and being vulnerable. And so they made the theme of this episode where they were just talking to each other. She wasn't really interviewing him um, as forming connections and relationships to our community. And Mm. what does that look like? Why is it important? And they did that thing that Barack and Michelle do so well, where it's really clear what and who they're talking about without 
and mm. like what and who they're responding to um, without having to say it. So they talked for an hour about their backgrounds, about um, their families and different kinds of family connection and integration into community. And then the different paths that they took to community service where, you know, Barack sort of came up, um, has his really impressive law credentials and then went into community focused organizing and politics and sort of like knew from the jump that he wanted a life of service um, and that Michelle took her fancy law credentials and started in a really fancy law firm mm -hmm. and realized that that left her feeling disconnected and empty and wanting to serve her community as well. So pivoting her work into nonprofits and the public sector, um, which ultimately, you know, led to their life in politics and to him becoming the president and them, you know, being representatives of representatives and serving to all kinds of different communities. It was really like everything that I wanted to hear for an hour. Um, Amanda listened to it before I did and texted me that morning. It was like, this is so soothing. Hmm. Like just listening to them talk to each other and laugh with each other and tell stories and um, really just thoughtfully examining where we are in this moment in our culture and what happens when we are driven from a perspective of like things are limited or things are scary. Um, and I need to get everything that I can get for myself. And then maybe I can worry about other people versus a more collective mm. mindset and how that, how it sets back progress when we're just worried about taking care of ourselves. Mm. Um, I would guess probably one of the more pointedly political episodes that they'll have on the show, but it wasn't, you know, outright political. It just certainly has implications for how you think about the world, but they were, you know, loose and candid and it, um, Michelle, you know, teasing Barack about how she's very skeptical about things and he's the yes, we can man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was just, it, it was good for the soul, you know, like. There, it's probably very much a preaching to the choir situation. The folks that are tuning into the Michelle Obama podcast have already bought into all of the ideas of the Michelle. Well, Obama. I think that's true of podcasting writ large. I think more yeah. than any other medium, like you, it's like you're enter, It's like you enter into the echo chamber knowing it's an echo chamber to some degree. I think largely, yeah. even if it's about content, but like people aren't listening to to podcasts where they like actively hate the, right. the, the, the format. <laughs> like it's too intimate. It's too optional. It just doesn't work that way. I yeah. Think. I think at its, at its best, it's a host that you like love and trust and they introduce you to some challenging ideas or to a mm. guest that you weren't familiar with or that you wouldn't have like listened to them in a different context, but because the host has your baseline trust, you sort of right. go in there. Um, yeah, you're right. Like it's a it's an echo chamber we enter willingly, and it serves a purpose. I think like it, it listening to Michelle and Barack talk about these things like sort of a, you know reminded me about why I think about the world in the way mm. that I do, and it it was a needed dose of hopefulness, which I think we can all use <laughs> right now. Mm -hmm. um, it was it was good. It was just exactly what I wanted for an hour. Like, frankly, if it were an hour of Michelle and Barack every week and she didn't have any other guests mm. ever, that might be perfect. <laughs> uh, technical questions. <laughs> mm -hmm. Ads? Yes. And, the and ads, how did those go? How those? Tell me about those. The ads are read by a lady with a British-sounding accent. Really? Mm-hmm. Interesting choice. What were the yes. ads for? Do you know off the top of your head? Uh I fast-forwarded through them. Oh, don't <laughs> tell people they can do that. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I've got a 15-year-old Hyundai Elantra with two hubcaps to keep up here. <laughs> I know. I, I'm i sorry. <laughs> no, that's all right. That's okay. I'll, I'll, maybe I'll go look at it. I was because I was wondering, of course, like Spotify, they're trying to get people in. It's a you know freemium service. Mm -hmm. Um. But they're probably thinking there's a lot of people that will listen to this that won't sign up for the service uh, or, or not. So, okay. So um, we talked before about the thing you especially wanted, but I guess I wanted to, though. I, I don't know that I'm going to listen uh, just for time reasons as much as anything. But on a scale of one to five margaritas, zero to five margaritas of looseness, mm. where were they on the looseness? Did, did, it, did it pass the threshold of looseness that you want, assuming that you're not going to get like – Confessions of Barack Obama, you know, that kind of a situation. <laughs> no, you're not going to get that. Yeah, I mean, but I on, think... But on the range of possible, was it? Cl how close was it to what you would like to hear in terms of I, candor? I think that a realistic expectation is that the loosest we will ever get 
Barack is like one and a half margaritas, maybe. <laughs> and is this that though? I mean, are we, how close are we to that? I think almost there. I've okay. heard him throw more shade in other contexts, mm. but they were, how about this? They were at like one and a half margaritas of looseness in their dynamic with each other and I see. like sort of ri- like ribbing each other in a really good natured way and talking about their own relationship and, you know, like about the years that he had a car with like holes in the bottom and Michelle was driving a sob with the heated seats. And so Barack always wanted to take the sob. Mm-hmm. Um, but probably more like a three quarters of a margarita in the, pub- the public facing. <laughs> It's like when you're skiing, you can be skiing pretty hard on the mountain, but you're staying on the trails, right? You're not going off into the trees or doing some crazy stuff. Like Mm -hmm. you just stay in where you want to be, but you're giving yourself some freedom within that. Uh, That makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, Any intimation of the next guest? No. No. Okay. I'm trying to think of what else. Okay. I guess that's really it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm, um, I'm only two hours into my 26, uh, our audiobook about the history of AT and T. So I've got some, I've got some <laughs> oh, time boy. before yeah. I'm getting to something else. But uh. <laughs> I sent the link this week to um, "Stamped from the Beginning" by Ibram X Kendi. It's free on Spotify right now, and oh, I yeah, sent right. it to a friend that I had mentioned the book to, and he was like, "There's just no way that I'm going to have time to read a 600 page book, but I might listen to it." And I was like, "Cool, yep. it's free right now, and the chapters are about podcast length, so I think that would mm. work." But the way that Spotify has broken up the tracks, it looks like. <laughs> It has 391 tracks. What? He was like, he was like, great. So I'm going to be listening to this forever. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it won't you know, take you that long. It'll be, if you're going to dedicate that much time to something, uh, right. probably that text is the one. That yep. Bears, that's a good one. It's a good uh, choice. That's the one the bear to do. All right. Well, it sounds like it's off to a roaring start. Um, I think we could have a fun parlor game of what the next guest was, is going to be. Yeah. If you're going to, if the strategy is heavy hitters first, you know, you know, where we're going to, you could go. Joe B, you know, mm-hmm. that's coming up. Um, mm-hmm. If it's, is this, if we suspect the vice presidential pick is next week and it looks like the betting market suggests it's Kamala Harris, you could see that happening. Depends on politically when it go. You know, Oprah, I'm sure, is waiting in the wings somewhere to, you know, probably they've recorded with her or that, that's on the uh, – our, our beloved uh, Conan O'Brien. Maybe he comes in hot, number two, <laughs> right after Barack Obama. Would be, that would be – like, who wants to follow – Barack. It should kind of like philosophically, it should almost definitely be Joe Biden just because he's used to following Barack. Yeah. Or Conan, because what's he got to lose? <laughs> true. Like, yeah. That's like true. Conan's just a completely screwball, different energy coming in there. So uh, interesting to see. Okay. Let's see. Now let's get on to maybe uh, other kinds of stories. I could, we're still, you know, speaking of, we're going to get to waiting on book stuff here in a minute. Mm. We're waiting on Barack's book. Oh, right. Right. Mm-hmm. That $65 million deal with Crown that Becoming maybe single-handedly paid for, <laughs> uh, we're not sure. But like Barack, like his, he had a couple books as part of that, and I'm sure one is a big presidential memoir, I would guess. If I I'm were sure he's Barack, not done with it, want... but I would – no, no. Don't release yeah. it now. I wouldn't want to turn that book in until after this administration. <laughs> what, if, what if tomorrow he, they announced a January 21st, 2021 release date? What an incredible flex. <laughs> <laughs> For, that's, no matter the outcome, actually, it would be an incredible flex for like a billion. That's real moxie that I could get behind yeah. for so many reasons, and not the least yeah. of which is that the pre-orders for it would be a great blow to our current presidency. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, speaking of book sales, um, interesting link about this bump in print sales that we've talked about. I think with a, I think a reasonable amount of um, bewilderment about how mm-hmm. the print sales have been up and yet everything has been closed. Well, it turns out not everything has been closed. And we know this. Well, we. We know this. You know this. I know this. I am dumb and always forget it. That yep. Costco and these big box stores sell a lot of books. And what did they do, Rebecca? What, what did they do here? They sold a lot more of a mm-hmm. lot of books during the shutdown. Walmart, Target, yep. Costco, the speculation is um, like maybe some of the sale, book sales in those places, publishers have estimated might have done as much as quadrupled <laughs> during mm. like, the height of the lockdown. And it, it's exactly what you said. It makes so much sense. We were yep. over here like, well, a lot of people are supporting indie bookstores, which they are, and a lot of people are bored. So they're ordering books from Amazon, which they were, but it like just did not explain the no. size of the jump and we were completely forgetting that 
everybody had to go get groceries. And while they were mm-hmm. out, like trying to find the last available package of toilet paper in their city, they might have also picked up a book from Costco. <laughs> Yeah. Or five books from Costco. Yeah, on I mean, one... not a surprise. Not yeah, a, once, once you put this link in here, I'm like, oh, Jack, I know that's. Forest. I had a like a big, you know, like facepalm moment when I came across this story because, like, of course, especially mm. when the messaging was around like stay home except for one weekly trip to get your essentials, yep. and if your weekly trip to get your essentials is Costco, Walmart, Target, and they have books, and you can do that too. <laughs> Great. Mm. It it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> someday, someday we will remember that big boxes sell books. It, it makes me. T- it, did we mention this in the show that as part of the Barnes and Noble reorg, um, that uh, what was her name? Cecily. What's her last Cecily name? Cecily We did mention it. Sim- yeah, the we did. Mm-hmm. So she, you know, for a long time, the most influent, mm-hmm. maybe the single most influential person in books, why is it kept in the nineties? Where you know, buying yeah. for all of Barnes and Nobles in nineteen ninety seven was like kind mm-hmm. of an amazing. You know, there's an annotated episode there. R.I.P. Pour out the forty, but. Um, <laughs> Now, who buys for Costco? Like, who, who's that person? Like, because yeah. I always find that that I, whenever we're in Costco, and I'm, you know, we're again, I haven't been there in a million years, but I'm always fascinated by the arrange because, like, I feel like there's certain lanes that they want to fill. No, it doesn't matter what books are out. Like, they feel like there's the Bill O'Reilly kind of conservative, mm-hmm. you know, killing Washington, you know, drained swamp kind of a book, and then there's like a book club section. But then there is some there's some room for there's a lit fic thing sometimes or an interesting nonfiction like the the blend they get in there is always sort of interesting. And I wonder that quadrupling there, you know, and we we don't again, we don't have a good insight into book sales for a lot of reasons, blah, blah, blah. I wonder the books that were on the table in April probably mm-hmm. sold even better than they would have if they were on the table in a normal April um, all the way around. So maybe the print sales were up, but I'm guessing even more concentrated toward fewer titles yeah, is what I would guess. I would guess so too. You know, And I think at one point there was like a Costco book club or like a, I want to say it was like Patty's Pick, but oh, I, don't, I don't- I don't think I've ever seen that. I don't know if that's right, but I feel like there was a Costco book club kind of thing at some point, yeah. um, but I don't know if that was- marketing or if there if there was a buyer behind that like yeah, i would who's love patty <laughs> right like tell yeah. us your story patty but like the i and i wonder too if this has shifted the right. buyer's habits for like for these big box retailers where it it's not just like your latest james patterson dan mm. brown nora roberts but like are they going to be mixing in some more variety for folks that would normally not be buying their books at costco but, no, but no. are now like you know wanting to be super efficient and get their toilet paper and their 50 pounds of flour and you know and pick mm. up a, a couple things to read um yeah, I, I'm not sure what else there is to say there, but if you were buying books at Costco, tell us what you bought. Yeah. What did you see there? What was on the docket? Um, I'm guessing there was one with initials AD that was sitting around there, um, which, in fact, I think I saw. Mm. I was in a Costco between when that came out and this all happened. There was like a four- or five-week window there. And I, I do remember looking at the table, and I, I think I, I did see it there. I wonder who else was on the table Um for sure. Also, I, you know, we don't have this link in the show notes, uh, but I should have put in there the Booker Long List came out this week. Oh, yeah. Um, and just shouts to Kylie Reed, such a fun mm-hmm. age, you know, a book we've talked about a lot. I was also, I, I didn't put a link in the show notes because I forgot. Uh, Rebecca, if you wouldn't mind typing while I talk, the yeah. Get Booked I guessed on with Jen. I shouted out uh, C. Pam Zhang's How Much of Those Hills is Gold. Um, mm. And she's also got a, a debut novel. Uh, Long list for a booker. The book, it's a really interesting historical fiction book. I thought it was really great. And then Brandon Taylor's Real Life. He's a young black writer. He has his debut novel. Also booker long listed. I think that's three Americans of color with Mm -hmm. debut novels on the booker damn long list. That's a hell of a job. So congratulations to all of them. So I I haven't read Real Life. It's been on my – I was going to do it on audio for some reason. I don't know why. I think – I like – I like – I think um, Taylor uh, – narrates it i think and it's sort of loosely autobiographical so i was kind of waiting to do it on audio and i never got around to it but mm. such and fidage you've heard us talk about you know her being so good and vanessa do a whole episode and how much of these hills gold by c pen zang um really interesting too if you like historical fiction especially it's about setting the gold rush and these the two two you know kind of tweenish kids of chinese immigrants who the, the parents die and these kids got to find their way in you know 1880 in america uh when you know 
not that uh, being a minority of any time is ever great, but being of Asian descent, especially in the West, there was all kinds of stigma. Um, and, and a story that we kind of know about working on railroads and being, you know, working in San Francisco and other places, but told in a way that's long overdue to tell. I thought it was really, really great. So one one benefit of I thought how much of these hills of gold came out this year. I don't know what the Booker's calendar is because such a fun age. Maybe it, it came out in Britain. I, I'm all over the place. Oh, like I don't know what's eligible right. for anything. This is an insane. Yeah. Thing, but uh, <laughs> there are know, lots who of cares, particularities. I guess. Yeah, I'm glad to see such a fun age get nominated for something because yes. putting out a really great novel on the last calendar day of the year is just not cool <laughs> for yeah, that right. book. You know, being in consideration for awards and i'm glad to see that it's still getting some attention that's a great one and real um, life has also been on my list forever someday when yeah. i can read fiction again <laughs> yeah uh while we're on the well i guess why was i thinking about adaptations i wasn't i guess oh i was thinking about um uh michelle obama's becoming mm. book mm-hmm. becoming whatever that thing you would call now taniasi coates's uh between the world and me is going to be an adaptation sp- Special? That's fast. I I don't have a good sense of what this is going to look like. Between yeah. the World and Me is, well, it's it's an epistolary novel, sort of like it, the frame is mm-hmm. him writing to his son about his experience growing up, explicitly about being a black man in America, but also his other, you know, his, his life at large, but primarily through that lens. One of the best-selling memoirs of all time at this point, mm-hmm. I think, has another resurgence now. Um, uh, it's going to be directed by Apollo Theater executive producer Camila Forbes. The Coates and actress Susan Kalechi Watson will produce the special along with filmmaker Roger Ross Williams. But yeah, I don't know what it's going to look like. Is it well, going to be a dramatization, kind of a play situation? What do you think? Yeah, here? it says it combines elements from the theater production with documentary footage, archival footage, and animation. So I would well, guess... Well, what is that? I mean, that's fascinating, yeah, but I'm, I don't have a good sense right, of what that I need is. to, like, I'm going to think out loud yeah. to get myself through it. I think, right. like, you know, voiceovers of documentary and archival footage, probably, mm. and that, like, illustrate the stuff from Coates' book and maybe some animations, right. like, drawn in as mm. well. Um, it's going to be really interesting to see. Um, I know yeah. a couple of people in here in Richmond who have told me that that book was really pivotal, like a very pivotal turning point, which I guess is what pivotal means um, <laughs> in, in yeah. their white people, that that book was very pivotal in their mm. like deeper understanding of what it is to exist in America as a black person, especially as a black man, and that it was part of them like really getting radicalized. Um, I, so especially hearing that... Um, and knowing just how powerful it is and how many people have read that book, like putting this on HBO and giving Coates, like Tani Hussey Coates needs the widest possible audience for mm-hmm. everything forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and yep. I'm really, I think this is going to be super interesting. I'm excited to see it. And I think if it goes well, we'll have a, a strong case for HBO and for other producers and other networks, you know, Netflix, Hulu, whoever, to take other like really important works like this and experiment with how to adapt them, that it doesn't have to yeah. be like a straight dramatization and it doesn't have to be a work of fiction to be adapted into something that can be powerful. I would definitely have watched a like uh, a fictional or not even a fictional, but like a, a dramatic film adaptation with Michael B. Jordan playing Tani Coates. I would definitely have been oh. interested in that. But I think I'm more interested in this, whatever this is going to be. I think yeah, for I was what I thinking... like about this book and what I like about these kinds of situations, I know this is going to yeah. come as a surprise to people out there. I like a literary documentary, so sign me up. <laughs> um, yeah, I was anyway. thinking about Jasmine Ward's essay collection that she edited, or the anthology she edited yeah, a, couple, a couple years ago right. called The Fire This Time, that had mm. so many, there's so many wonderful writers in there talking about so many different aspects of life in America as a black person, that it could be done, you could do that episodically, you know, like do a series yeah. with each episode focusing on a different writer and their story, and some of them could be dramatized, and some of them could mm. be done documentary like that's a great call that would be like an anthology like an anthology docudrama series based on that Mm -hmm. that's a book that um i wish was we were seeing up there on the charts in this political moment you know i think it's one where it wasn't ahead it was of its time and always ahead Mm -hmm. of its time to talk about racism of course but like didn't quite do what anthologies never do. I guess that's just, that's just always the truth. They never do as well as they should. But if you're looking for something else, you want to add to your list. If you've done the, I don't know how to be anti-racist and some of the things that are floating are out there right now. And you're looking for what else is 
was really interesting. I think that one's great because you get you get a bunch of different perspectives. Like that's another thing that for you know we were talking about in Slack the other day that Kendi is already. I mean, he's out there kind of as the in a lot of ways intellectual mm-hmm. voice of this particular moment. So he's getting criticism and pushback, which is good. That's, that's a, I mean, most of the time it's good, I should say, that yeah, well, he, these things are debated, a, black people aren't a monolith, there's right. a bunch of different ways of understanding this. And in an anthology Kenny's like... a scholar, the, he welcomes it, yeah. Yeah, he welcomes it, uh, you know, the, the good faith kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. an anthology actually gives you, this, gives you that kind of um, polyphony that you don't get when it's one person writing a book-like thing through their own voice. You get, you get those multi-factor angles that can be really yeah. interesting as and, well. And I think if you're looking also for more writers to be reading right now that maybe aren't writing specifically about yeah, here is my book yeah. about the black experience, but that are writing as black people who exist in the world. The fire of this mm-hmm. time could introduce you to a couple dozen folks whose work you could go find. Like it was my introduction to KSA Lehman. Um, yeah, um, right. Yeah, and yeah. like, his piece in this book is completely different from his novel and his memoir. And those are all things that are well worth reading. Um, I'm just looking at the cover art for between the world and me. Also two, two notes here. One is, isn't it wild that we've been doing this show long enough that a book that came out five years ago, we talked about, and it wasn't even early in the show's run at that yeah. point that we talked about when between the world and came out. <laughs> Cause I remember talking about it got, I mean, what other cover, what other blur, this, the best blurb in the history of blurbs, I think that you could mm-hmm. possibly get. Tony Morrison, yeah. this is required reading. I, I, I don't, I don't know. What, what else are you going to, what do you, what do you want? <laughs> That's it. Hang it up. Put on your tombstone. Mm-hmm. You know, he was required reading. Uh, Taniasi Coates. Right. Uh, you know, whenever that's, you know, may, may it be <laughs> that's in many decades. That's the equivalent of winning the Lifetime Achievement Award when you're 50, like we were talking about with Colson. Yeah, with Colson. It's like, well, just shut it all down now. Right, (laughs) right, right. That's a tough follow-up. I'd rather follow uh, Barack on the Michelle Obama podcast than have to follow (laughs) that one myself. Uh, What do you want to say about I didn't read this response to the Harper's letter. What would you find interesting about this? I didn't get all the way through it, so tell me a little bit more about it. Do you want to put it in the show notes for people to peruse or what? Yes. I really just wanted to point our listeners to it that um, I guess two pieces of follow-up about that Harper's letter, and the first Mm -hmm. one is that I think we both had the moment of like, oh, we should have seen this coming, that several of the folks behind the construction of that letter were preparing to resign. (laughs) They were preparing to like publicly flounce from the publications Mm -hmm. that they worked for in order to start their own new publication where they can, where they can truly have free speech, Jeff. Um, so that made a lot of sense in retrospect. Um, but there's a great piece by um, Pankaj Mishra and Viet Tan Nguyen on The Guardian where they're talking about um, the current Black Lives Matter moment, the Harper's letter, where we go from here and how in their understanding and their experience, um, what they're looking at now, free speech has never been freer. And that mm. um, it's that the thing that's happening to voices that are used to having been dominant and used to having had privilege is that equality feels like oppression, um, that they're seeing more people than ever be able to express the truth about their reality and push back for, um, for truly equal rights and for freedom of expression. And they call BS on that Harper's letter in, um, very smart and thoughtful, um, eloquent ways that are worth spending some time with. Um, so I, we will put that link in the notes. Yeah, that's, I'm going to, I, I want to read it. I just didn't get a chance to do it. Um, while we're on the, the, the the actual free speech versus or censorship versus you know perceived or garbage mm-hmm. um, claims or censorship, a, a truly one of the more disturbing stories I've seen of late related to libraries. Um, this was in Nevada. Uh, basically, the the Douglas County Nevada libraries were considering adopting a diversity statement that proclaimed everyone was welcome inside. They condemned all acts of violence and said we support Black Lives Matter. Then Douglas County Sheriff Daniel J. Coverly sent a letter. To the county's public letter, this is a BuzzFeed News piece mm-hmm. that we'll put in the episode, telling members not to bother calling 911 for emergencies at the libraries anymore. I mean, some truly authoritarian stuff. Due to your support of Black Lives Matter and the obvious lack of support or trust with the Douglas County Sheriff's Office, please do not feel the need to call 911 for help. I wish you good luck with disturbances and lewd behavior, since those are just some of the recent calls my office has assisted with in the past. I mean, that's that's as bad as it gets. That's a terrible job, and... You know, it may not actually be, you know, First Amendment, Congress can make show law, but it's the government, you know, it's a government agency telling another one what it, that it will choose to do its job based on saying people shouldn't get killed for being black. I mean, 
what 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 an outrage this is and what it's- a terrible terrible precedent and i really hope this dude gets fired voted out of office or whatever it is because this is not this is exactly why we're having again it's mm-hmm. one of those things like you're doing the thing that we're talking about you shouldn't do so you tell us to shut up about talking about the things you shouldn't do like i i i, I was when i saw this i really couldn't believe i I, we've seen enough at this point, Rebecca, about you know libraries and what goes on, and like uh, I didn't think I had the capacity really to be surprised, but this mm-hmm. one really got me. I have to say, it really you, did. It really surprised me too, and not so much that a sheriff might think this. Like we've seen enough of the Blue Lives Matter stuff. Yeah, and enough, yeah, fair. And That's enough of point. like yeah. the the premise he's acting from is false. You know, like the library's statement says, we are again we. We denounce violence. We denounce racism. We support Black Lives Matter. The sheriff has decided that a statement in favor of Black Lives Matter is implicitly and automatically a statement of not supporting the police. Yep, and that right. is what he's that's what he's saying to these librarians. I'm not surprised that this is thought that's out there. I am mostly surprised that he did not consider how this was going to go over like the utter lack of perspective and that you're not going to look strong and you're not going to look like you're doing your job here like you get paid by the people who live in your county to do your job and you're saying like what happens if i have a black lives matter sign in my front yard and i live in nevada and i call 911 does that mean that if like if something is happening to me and the police roll up to my house they're just going to decide not to take care of what mm-hmm. I need. Like this, go, this goes exactly to the conversations about why defund police and fund instead, you know, social services and yeah. support that actually will take care of problems rather than policing the problems. It's, I mean, this is a horrible, horrible look. Um, apparently Coverly went and met with the, some people at the library and said, we agreed that we both support the people of Douglas County. And this may have been an unfortunate circumstance of misunderstanding. <laughs> that uh-huh. is complete garbage. That's the complete library, garbage. The library, and this is the librarian. This is the, from the library side. The library respects and supports the work of the Douglas County Sheriff's Office and appreciates everything they do to keep our community safe. I, I think they, they got their cage rattled. I, don't, I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, Maybe they believe yes, this, because, but this is what you say if someone comes rattles your cage. Yeah. Well, then, then further in, Coverly, whose department has committed to still respond to calls at the library, said the letter was, quote, rooted in my belief that these issues need to be openly discussed in a way that values diversity and law enforcement. And if the thing you're looking for right now is valuing, like truly valuing diversity and the sanctity of black lives... Like a big parade in favor of law enforcement just as a concept is antithetical to that. And so the the statement that the library is considering, the vote on it, the board is going to consider has been rescheduled. We don't know if it's ever going to happen. Like did, um, you know, what, uh, I wonder where the Harper's letter about this one. Where do you think, do you think they're just, gathering signatures? Do you think it's right now or do we have to wait? They're probably going to gather like a thousand signatures for this one for Harper's. Do you think just, that's what they're going to do for this one? Fire this guy. Like, <sighs> All right, well, let's do one last sponsor. We saved the meatiest one for last, actually, that uh, <laughs> I think we are both the human incarnation of the eyes emoji for oh the my, next I'm one. I'm so uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, I, I, we'll, we'll get we'll, the sponsor. Let's do a sponsor and we'll come back. We try to gather a little bit of, uh, we, we'll have to un, un, uh, shield our eyes to talk about this. <laughs> um, okay, so this is one of the, one of the um, I guess, ongoing interesting questions we've talked about over time is you know mostly in the context of george r R. martin and uh, the winds of winter the long promised uh, awaited uh fifth book in the game seven book game of thrones series Uh, i try not to say that without snickering because it's not fair but on the (laughs) but it's been so long the last book became out before book right started which was almost nine years ago so that's all you need to know about that um but in the shadow like you know, Martin's kind of the headliner right now for giant yeah. fantasy series that we're waiting on the installment. We've, I think we've gone a little past uh, what you might expect in terms of a timeline. But right below him, in the and it's more of an internal fantasy kind of world name. People that know Game of Thrones don't know the Kingkiller Chronicles by Patrick Rothfuss, of which the two installments have been published. And the last one, it's been a while. Let's put it that way. I think six years now mm-hmm. since the last one. Um, and Dan, uh, a writer for us, 
uh, they wrote a story, not not necessarily about Rothfuss especially, but name-checking Rothfuss, talking about, like, authors don't owe us the next work. Like, we've talked about yeah. this before. They don't owe us the next book. On the other hand, you can understand there's a certain frustration. You're into the series. You're what you're anticipating it. But they don't owe us the work. Like, it's not cool. You, you know, there hasn't been – there's not a social contract between a reader and an author that, that they've somehow abrogated by being slower than you would like, right? That's the, the tenor of the piece. I thought it was a really nice piece. We'll put a link in the show mm-hmm. notes there. That apparently got in front of – um, Patrick Rothfuss's editor, who actually, do you have her name in front of you? I can't remember. I, I'm, it's a blanking on uh, me. Kind of Betsy Wolheim. Yeah, at DAW Books, who's the president and, and Rothfuss's editor, who decided on Facebook <laughs> to just let it all hang out. <laughs> like all of it. <laughs> saying, saying, and I'm not paraphrasing, I mean, I'm sort of paraphrasing, but I'm not exaggerating, saying, <laughs> I don't believe he's written a word like, in the last six years. She's seen Bupkis. Like, for the next book and really going off wow, about pants, this. To paraphrase my friend Nikki, like her pants are all the way unbuttoned here. They're, they're, <laughs> got, they're off. They're flowing <laughs> in the wind. She's running down the middle it of the is. street. Ah, uh, man. It's been a couple days since this story broke. And when it broke, like you and I were on the phone with each other. Like, yes. I'm so embarrassed for everyone involved. <laughs> I like, really like, am too. I'm, it's so cringy. Yeah. My awkwardness threshold is like pretty high. And I feel feel so uncomfortable about looking at this online like i don't know how it got in front of betsy wolheim i don't know how she probably has a google maybe she reads the site mm, maybe she has a google alert for patrick rothfuss i wouldn't you know editors tend to do stuff like that and she's got to be tired of hearing fans wonder and speculate and it seems like a a particular piece that like pushed her buttons um from dan's really I, i agree dan's piece about it is really great and one of the things Dan speculated about was like maybe one of the reasons we haven't seen this book yet is like a long editorial process. Right. And I think Betsy took that personally. <laughs> any intimation that she had anything to do with the delay was just too much. Like that was the yeah. that was too much. Yeah, and then she was like, nope, and just let it all out. Like there's some interesting aside from how cringeworthy this mm. is there's some interesting stuff buried in this piece yes, and some yes. interesting stuff that betsy wolheim says like as she's responding to people in her facebook thread which like if you're thinking about letting no, it all don't, out don't don't, do, don't let don't, it all out don't, on don't. facebook like we've i know we're in like quarantine of some capacity depending on where you live and it's been a long time and maybe you haven't had to make eye contact with your boss in a while mm-hmm. but like don't do it yeah, a 500-word Facebook post clearing the air. Never a good it's, idea. It's, don't, 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 don't do it. Just Never do it. a good idea. You know what you don't do don't instead do is you send your best friend a text that begins with their name in all caps, and mm-hmm. then you let it all out. But you just right. don't. You just don't. But what of the things Or you that, start working on your memoir. So when this right, is all like, over... This is why... So like, if it's true that Patrick Rothfuss has written zero words, which like Newsweek investigates and points back to some things that he said in interviews in the last few years, and it doesn't seem true or likely that he has written zero words, but if it's true that he's like over deadline and hasn't turned in something that the publisher... Which owed. has to be true like this, at this point. Right. It has like, to be this true. Is what, the deadline was, well, you know, in six right. years, get us something. We'll be fine. Yes. Like, yeah. this is what contracts exist for. And she mm-hmm. says in here, like, it Fs publishers over when their big authors don't turn in their books. Like, sure, it does. And also, you could take him to court and get his advance back. Um, yep. And you still would not earn all the money that you were going to make when that book sold eventually. But, like, this is one of the it's just a risk inherent in giving people mm-hmm. money to make things before they have made the thing as it might not actually appear and it, further in she gets into how like this doesn't just screw us over because we were expecting to have this book and make this money but that the money that big books make the money that the most popular authors make underwrites the publication of other books that aren't going to sell very well, which is a thing like that's a true thing that happens right. in publishing. It's a phenomenon we've talked about on the show that like you have to publish your Dan Browns and your James Patterson's in order to make enough money to justify actually paying like your small poet to write a thing. And she says in here, the quote, big names support the writers who may be just as interesting, but not as commercial people who may not sell well, but deserve to be published. And I want to pick apart that last sentence a little bit because first of all like no one deserves to be published um (laughs) nobody ever deserves to be published that's not a thing but it's also not any big author's job to 
underwrite anyone else's book deal. Like if Patrick Rothfuss is screwing his publisher over, that sucks. And she needs to find a better and more professional avenue for airing her grievances about it. But it's not his job to turn this book in so his publisher can have money to acquire and publish books that are not going to make them money. And that's Mm. because the publishing business model is broken in some way. (laughs) Yeah, it it is. It's, it's, it's true. I mean, I I guess the other piece is, I I think Dan was right when they wrote, you know, this isn't our, as a reader and consumer, we don't have a ethical or moral claim on the next book. Now, if you're Rothfuss and you've entered into contract and you took some money and you right. agreed to do a thing, I think that's up to, you know, mm-hmm. I would like to think that I would deliver at some point. That, I, that Has he made a good faith effort to deliver on it? We, we can't know that. I certainly won't. I, I'm not going to infer anything from no. this particular post. <laughs> but I think there is a different, there's a different scale of obligation when it yeah. comes to people you do business with, you sign a, you've made an agreement on, like... That's but that's between them. That doesn't have anything uh, to do with us. So, yeah, it you know, doesn't have anything to do with us. And the, you know, I think the big question mark over this is like, does Betsy Wolheim get fired? And if not, what happens with Patrick Rothfuss's books? Because at the end of her totally bananas note, she says. Everything said, if I get a draft of book three by surprise sometime, I will be extraordinarily happy, joyous, actually, and will read it immediately with gusto. I love Pat's writing. I will instantly feel forgiving and lucky, lucky to be his editor and publisher. And like, after this, is he going to give her that chance? No. I I mean, well, (laughs) it would be difficult for me to understand how someone could get to that level of grace. About right. that kind of, <laughs> about that, you know, like, you know, I was, I grew up in the Methodist church and grace was the word that was often uh-huh. used. And this would be uh-huh. a moment of, of, of extreme mm, grace. Extreme it be, grace. It would be difficult for me to get to that particular place. You know, maybe one reason they haven't sued Rothfuss to get the advance back is they know whenever they get it, it'll still pay off. Like it's still in their interest not to sue. Yeah. And also, I guess the other thing that's sort of implied in what you're saying that I think one reason we make the eyes emoji about this is because there's, there's kind of an omerta about, author you know editors speaking publicly mm-hmm. about the state of their author's manuscripts right we just don't we never never yeah, that's, ever hear about well, this stuff i think for good reason like oh i think i think so too yeah yeah yeah, yeah but we just you don't. know like we don't and I, yeah we don't because we shouldn't like that artistic process is is private and can be messy and mm-hmm. it's important for a writer to be able to trust their editor and like have your messiness exist behind closed doors and know that the door will stay closed like this is a huge violation of not just professional behavior but of yeah. trust right um, and it would be very i think very difficult to understand um Patrick Rothfuss choosing to stay um, mm. with this editor. He probably, you know, certainly has obligations to the publisher. How appalling. And also like, what's her, I'm going to guess that Betsy Roth, that Betsy Wilhelm like had a rough night and was tired of seeing these things. And Who just, knows? I mean, there's, there's a know, lot of ways like, you could explain uh, yeah, like people most, acting badly. Right. right. You know, like the possible. most generous interpretation is like, she was having a rough day and she shot her mouth off on Facebook and mm. didn't mm. think about the consequences of doing that. Like, yep. I think that's probably pretty likely. If there was Newsweek any- picked up her Facebook post, she probably could yeah, probably like, wasn't thinking of right, that kind of co- exactly. uh, possibility. And, yeah. yeah, and that like I don't think the intention here was maybe if I publicly shame him, he'll come turn the book in. But like publicly shaming somebody about a thing like this is not proven to be a good way to get them to do the thing. That, you want them to that's do the anyway. piece I was wondering. What was she hope? <laughs> What was the what was the good version of outcome? Is that people were like, oh, you know, at least it's not Betsy's fault. Like that's what people like. That's the good outcome. Is because do people know we we never would hire her name would never come out of her mouth yeah, in a million know, years, and like, we do this for a living. Yeah, and what's funny is that like if the thing she's responding to from Dan's piece is the possibility that maybe this delay has to do with a lengthy editorial process, if she's trying to clear her name there, like you just made yourself look worse, Betsy. Uh, Streisand effect, maybe that's in the <laughs> biggest possible way. Um, it's, um, it's it's so... all those situations where. She's now more in the wrong than Rothfuss was by not delivering the manuscript. Like within that, really, the publisher author, she's mm-hmm. now she now leads the who done us wrong competition right, between like, Rothfuss and the publisher. I if think. I'm Patrick <laughs> Rothfuss in this situation, I'm on the phone to DAW Books. Like, I'll give you yeah. your book, but you have to fire her. Yeah. Like, you want to make your millions off of me? Here's the deal. I don't know. Do you know anything about these contracts in terms of like, uh, it? 
a confidentiality about that? I mean, I just wonder about like if there's any protection for the author or the publisher for them, for someone to mouth off about the process. And because yeah, we hear I... about it so infrequently that it's, it, you know, it's like the absent, it's a loud absence, mm-hmm. um, the way it's yeah, not I talked don't, about. I don't know if it's in, if it's, I've never heard of it being specifically in a book contract, but it may be in like a publishing house's code of conduct for their staff. Mm-hmm. Well, here's the thing. If it's not true that he hasn't written anything and she knew that she was exaggerating, she's got herself a libel case, mm-hmm. right? Cause it damages his reputation. People right. might stop buying it. I mean, in, in a very real way, it has negative. Again, libel is kind of hard to prove in America, which I think for a, in most cases is really pretty good on the whole. But mm-hmm. if she said something she knew to be false and it damaged him, and she, you could, I, I think it's not hard to see that she was trying to damage him even by like shifting blame from her to him is kind of a, yeah. a move to try to, I mean, you may have a case, right? I mean, I, I don't think it's unreasonable. Let's, let's say this, cease and desist letters mm-hmm. and offers to settle have been made for, for much, much less, less <laughs> much less than this particular. Also, it also um, connects the dots to a story, again, we covered a long time ago, it's been a while, of Lin-Man Miranda being signed on to be part of the oh, adaptation right. of King Killer Chronicles. And then he sort of bounced mysteriously and never, nothing happens. Like, you know, ain't no book. No, there's, mm-hmm. You don't want a Game of Thrones this situation now. And maybe it sounds like if my guess right now is that Rothfuss hasn't done very much, right? I, I would be hard-pressed to believe that there's like a whole manuscript and she's completely far afield in the truth of how many words have been how close to completion is. But it doesn't seem like it's close. Um, and that Manuel Miranda would be like, I got other things to do here, dudes. I, you know, this is not something that's going to work out well for either of us. Understandably, so. I don't know if I've told my story of, of the Rothfuss. I, I got the wreck for um, the name of the wind from my brother who said, this is really great. And I was like, oh, I'm looking for, you know, I like a, fa- a standalone fantasy book. <clears throat> um, 800 pages in or whatever, there's a cliffhanger for the next book. I'm like, oh, come on. <laughs> I can only adhere to O'Neill's razor if I know Neil O'Neill's razor is in the offing here. So I, mm-hmm. on the, so I, so I was like, what am I going to do? Am I going to wait for the third one to be released to read the second one? At this point, I don't, you know, I, I have no map. I don't know how to navigate here. I read the next one. I really like them both. I think they're super fascinating, but now I've forgotten. There's a lot about loots, um, <laughs> a lot about paying your tuition at magic school. That's about what I remember. When you think so by the time the third one comes out, if it ever does, you'll just need to reread the first two to get I ready. I guess so. Ames and Rowan and I will slog our way through uh, um, 50 hours of audio oh, wow. for the King Killer Chronicles. Unrelated to the King Killer Chronicles, but I was looking at other series that are ending soon that we both love. Mm. Um, and I was go- I realized I cannot find my copy of Home by Marilyn Robinson, which oh. is the middle book in the Gilead, the current Gilead trilogy, um, soon to be quartet when Jack comes out mm. this fall. So I went to order a, a new paperback of it, and the older paperbacks are not available because there is going to be a reissued one with a different cover mm. on August 4th. Mm, the box set. Yeah. I realize, so, too, I'm getting ready to start my reread. And I, it's been so long since I've read, you know, all of them. I mean, you know, I've read Gilead a few times. And I think I'll, the rest of them only read once. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I could put them in order uh, of release oh. after Gilead. Um, anyway, it's maybe, Gilead, maybe then I, a Home, then Lila. Was that right? I guess mm-hmm. that, that feels right. But I was like, it, would it be Lila, then Home, or Home, then Lila? Couldn't yeah. remember. And some of it is because the way that it's written, it kind of doesn't matter. Like, it's all right. kind of a schmear of time. We're moving from different perspectives. So I think you're better off reading them in the order with your release. But you could also, I think you read with Gilead first. But if you did Lila first, oh, then yeah. Home, or Home, then Lila, I don't know that it matters um, that much. It does feel like it's all pointing to Jack being the last one all through them. So I wouldn't, like, go Gilead, Jack, Lila, Home, or right. something like that. Anyway, we're... Yeah. <laughs> We're in machete order of Star Wars movies, nerddom over here. Um, <laughs> last thing, um, if you're a librarian, would you consider participating in a survey that Kelly Jensen is putting together for, for a piece on the site? Um, she's done several things about libraries right now, but especially in the age of COVID. And this one is specifically about homeschooling and public, li- public library preparations. You know, what librarians are doing, what are they thinking about, what tools are they explaining, what issues and concerns that they have. There'll be a link in the show notes. Um, she's going to take... Uh, Answers through August 5th. So by the time this comes out, you'll have a few days to go um, but it, uh, to go fill it out. be really interesting to see. We're in un- uncharted times. And Kelly's done some really nice work around public libraries. And the, I mean, everyone has unusual situations. I think libraries as a public 
good, um, a public space, a public resource that's on the margin between quote unquote essential and non-essential, I think it's kind of, that's one of the weird places libraries, they're not a hospital, right? Mm -hmm. Um, but they're also not a playground. So it's somewhere in the middle of how libraries participate in the health of American life in particular is leading to a lots of interesting questions. Um, we know a lot of librarians that are very nervous about a whole range of things and rightly so. Um, and Kelly's trying to collect some of those things to give us some perspective about what's going on there. So please, if you have a moment and are willing to share um, thoughts, preparations, and experiences, um, there's a link in the show notes there. As always, and the, the show notes, if you should want to find them, Book Riot, uh, no, 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 that's our email address. Our email address is podcast at bookriot.com. The URL is bookriot.com slash listen. You can navigate to Book Riot, the podcast there. You can find links to what we talked about in this episode and all of the back episodes of the Book Riot podcast, all 390 of them. And actually, there's probably a few more because there's a few halves and stuff in there. Uh, we may have already passed our 400th episode. Um, anyway, <sighs> Podcast at bookwright.com. Did we ask for anything in particular? Uh, if you bought books at Costco or Walmart or oh, Target yes, during the shutdown, yes, what yes, did you yes, buy? Yes, 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 yes. Um, I got to believe that every time, again, it's been a while since I was in Target, but the Magnolia stuff, the Gaines people, mm-hmm. they're always on the end caps at Target. I w- I'd love to know what percentage of those sales are from Target because they, they really seem to do well, or at least Target thinks they're going to do well. Or some, There's some advantage that Target gets from uh, putting them front and center. Yeah, I think they have a whole line of products in Targets. So it's like a... Oh, there you go. Yeah, Yeah, it's our deal, our deal. Yeah. Uh, Rebecca, thank you. We'll talk to you next time. All right. Have a good one. 